This is the Kratom Science Journal Club with Dr. Jonathan Cachet, neuroscientist and expert in psychopharmacology. In each episode, we discuss an article in a peer-reviewed journal. I'm your host, Brian Gallagher, blog and social media writer for KratomScience.com, your source for all things Kratom. On February 23rd, Dr. Cachet answered questions for a Reddit Ask Me Anything on r slash Kratom. There were so many AMA questions, he didn't have time to get to them all. So we decided to answer most of the remaining questions in a two-part Q&A of the Journal Club. Here's part one. So, these are remaining questions from the Ask Me Anything that we did last Tuesday. That would be a week ago, February 23rd. And that went pretty good. I mean, we had a lot of questions at the beginning. Uh, not many people joined us live, so I think, like, the next time we do that, we'll probably do it the same way. Um, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Yeah, so that was cool. That's cool. I th- it was cool for me. I mean, it was cool. You know, we had tried a few different things for some community engagement. Um and Twitter, you know, posting on social media, we got some responses. We got some people that, that reached out to us. But I think this Reddit AMA um, was certainly, I think, had a larger audience. Um, and so, you know, it's, it's always interesting for me, at least, to see where people's heads are at. There's the typical questions, but then there were a few that were, like, um, you know, funny or related to something else. I think I got into why I would want to uh, give octopus or octopi. Uh, LSD or MDMA uh, as compared to zebrafish or humans that I, that I did in graduate school. Um, so, I, you know, I would say that if you haven't checked out the the uh, Reddit AMA yet, it's on the subreddit Kratom, um, and it's a, a pretty lively thread. There's still some activity happening on it. And, yeah, I guess today we're going to use this opportunity to, to catch up on some of the questions that I, I couldn't get to that night. It was a lot of the questions were – stuff that we had previously chatted about on the episodes. So, you know, if you're into the, if you're into Kratom Science and you want to know what the latest research is, uh, going back and listening to these Journal Club um, uh, pods or episodes is, is probably one of the smoothest ways to do that. Yeah, the one I'm looking at now is how does Kratom interact, interact in conjunction with other substances such as alcohol in terms of liver metabolism. And we did a whole episode on Kratom and alcohol. That was uh, number 10, uh, Journal Club number 10. So if you just go right. to kratomscience.com slash podcast or whatever you're listening to this on, it should be listed. But it's number 10 would be the Kratom and alcohol question. And I think, you know, um, broadly speaking, it was there, there are no concerns that I'm aware of like compared to taking Tylenol and alcohol together where yeah. the two together like lead to a, yeah, a more um, potentially harmful uh, byproduct in the, in the like degradation of the alcohol or the incetaphetamine with Kratom. Um, it, it does, there is some indication about the CYP enzyme family, which almost everything interacts with. Um, but there's n- at least to date um, no, no, like super alarming hydra kids, hydra wife uh, interactions with kratom uh, and the liver as it relates to drug on drug interactions that I'm aware of. Have you seen anything recently, Brian, that would say differently? 
No, I think I think just in general, it's it's kind of like a long term thing. You want to you don't if you're a heavy drinker, like adding kratom into the mix probably isn't good. But if you're a moderate drinker, I don't. There's no indication yet that it's like you know. I mean, it's definitely not going to kill you, or I'd be dead already uh, <laughs> right away. Unless it was long term, I think. So kratom does. Uh, I mean, I was just talking to uh, Abhishek Sharma, who's doing some of the work. That, he's a pharmacokineticist, and he does some of the work at University of Florida. And he's saying that, you know, there are enzymes that um, might slow the metabolism of other drugs in the liver. Um but that's kind of like, you know, you don't want to take a lot of fentanyl if you have Kratom, too. Uh, yeah. That might be the actual and dangerous one. With alcohol, I think it's more of, uh, you know, long-term, you, you know, you don't want to drink a bunch of Kratom every day and then drink a bottle of whiskey every day. It's It'll probably just exact exacerbate the uh, damage that alcohol's in the liver, but I think if you're a moderate drinker, true. you're fine. But I yeah, don't know. Yeah. We're not medical doctors, especially me. For sure. <laughs> well, and the CYP enzymes, you know, there are a lot of um, everyday food and supplements and stuff that also interact with the CYP enzymes that also, you know, could potentially, you know, lead to the, the effects of Kratom being shorter or longer, you know, depending on what they do. But I, I think the critical thing is that the you know fatal interactions is there anything that i definitely need to worry about um and so beyond like the common sense stuff which i think i said in the ama it was essentially that like don't take you know don't don't live in the excesses you know not somewhere in the middle for what you're trying to achieve um is the best approach to it um but you know too much too little you know it, it, stay out of the extremes it, it's better to to be moderate uh when it, with anything you're consuming i guess i'll say and yeah, this other question wasn't specifically about alcohol, but he's talking about CYP enzymes. And um, I put a link there in our notes for it's one, Sharma, who I just interviewed. Uh, it's a study he worked on. It's called Metabolite Profiling and Identification of Enzymes Responsible for the Metabolism of Mitragenine. And so the quote I pulled from there is the CYP3A4 enzyme plays a predominant role in the metabolic clearance of mitragenine and also in the formation of 7-hydroxymitragenine. So that actually, I mean, that's a whole different subject, but uh, it, mitragenine metabolizes into 7-hydroxy in the liver. And then he even, he even told me in the interview that I just did with him last week, he was like, 7-hydroxy metabolite metabolizes into another thing that they just discovered um that's also acts oh. on the mu, mu receptors which is why he was saying that's why um the stuff we get over here the kratom we get over here is stronger because it has it's we well, start out with more seven hydroxy and um and so that it has more of the opiate effects than than like a fresh leaf tea does. So it's it's yeah. So it's something that we kind of have looked at, at as Americans taking this stuff. You can't just look at the old studies with fresh leaf on on traditional use and think that's going to be exactly the same. Even though you know it's probably still relatively safe, but we get more of the uh, opioid effects here because of how it works in the metabolism. I wonder if that's a, uh, an age thing. Like, over time, metragenine just, like, um, moves into the 7-hydroxymetragenine. Um, 
you know, I don't know. I'm looking at this paper not too, and it talks about demethylation and monooxidative metabolites. So it, it looks like this the enzymes are doing what they normally do to most to most other compounds, um, but it does create seven hydroxy uh, as a byproduct, a, a metabolic byproduct. So there, and there is some biological activity there. But was he saying that 7-hydroxy is just higher because of the age of the stuff that we're getting? I, I, I was asking him about it. Like, is it, you know, I asked him whether it was adulteration or because of the, it, it might be the drying process because the uh, alkaloids do become different after it's dried versus fresh. Um, and so we, we're, we're uh, over here where most people are getting, uh, you know, kratom powder. Uh, and so it's been dried, and so there might be more of the seven hydroxy in it. Might also be that people are uh, artificially putting more seven hydroxy, but I don't know. I don't think many people are doing that. You could probably do that in, in an extract. But the other thing with extracts is actually now I think they're safer because um, uh, Dr. Pergelic that I talked to, he did the toxic metals study where he found a bunch of lead in just different samples. He he went around and bought it himself in Chicago, and he he found some levels of lead that would be, if you're taking about 10 grams or more a day, then it might be toxic uh, over time. That, that amount of level and he said in the extracts they didn't find any because the extraction process whatever it did also filtered out the uh, lead and nickel um, that might have been another question as well but uh, okay here's the next question I, I like some of these names this guy's name is Pseudopene Pseudopeen <laughs> which I'd love to ask him what the hell that means uh but uh, have there any been have there been any studies on the use of kratom to help treat depression? I can anecdotally say it's been invaluable to me. Is there any understanding of the relationship between dose slash frequency and use and physical dependence on the substance? Okay, so there's actually two questions. But I looked at the yeah. the first question we did the second journal club was the potential for kratom as an antidepressant and antipsychotic. And as far as that goes, that's probably been the the one that's been studied the most, and and um, but it hasn't actually been like clinical trialed for people with depression yet. I don't think. Uh, but right. this this was kind of more of maybe like a article review or maybe like a social science study that because a lot of people report that it helps their depression because I can say that it just like if you get the kind of depression where you don't want to get out of bed kratom helps you just gives you a little energy boost kind of like coffee does for a lot of people and mm -hmm. um, and this guy even said it helped treat my depression so it's just I don't think there's anything you know clinical out there uh, but I do think what this guy said he's like it helped he said I can anecdotally say it's been helpful to me so that's yeah. the answer I, I have mean, broadly speaking it targets the same sort of signaling systems of dopamine and serotonin if you're going to get uh, an antidepressant um, or anti, well, antidepressants uh, overall from a doctor, you're going to get um, either like an older generation one that is involved in increasing dopamine signaling, or you're going to get a newer generation, uh, a selective serotonin reuptake inhibitor, an SSRI, where again, they're increasing the activity of serotonin in the brain. And so 
you know, really even beyond that, like, let's take the creative question out of the picture. Um, just broadly speaking, there's not like, aside from dopamine and serotonin being involved and maybe some different receptor alleles leading to different severity of symptoms, that's really about all we know uh, in regards to depression and, um, you know, sort of the other, those, those affective cognitive disorders. It's not like you could point to a receptor and say they have 50% less of these receptors. So if we increase activity here, it's good to go. Like the, the etiology or the, the causes behind depressive symptoms are vast and wide and, um, you know, very level, various levels of depth there. So, um, Anecdotally, yes, people say that it can help treat depression. I think the paper that we looked at, it was published in 2020, um, Potential for Creative as an Antidepressant and Antipsychotic. That is a, a PubMed Central free article, so the full yeah. text is available for review there. Um, but it, what it does is it, it proves or, or highlights the ways in which creative and its, and its alkaloids are involved in dopamine and serotonin signaling. Um, and just from that alone, you could hypothesize that it would um, probably help most, um, uh, you know, many different forms of depression from like low affect and, and motivational states to, um, you know, bigger sort of uh, the world is on my shoulders type depressive things. And, and so signaling the right receptors, yes. Then there's the other sort of like more qualitative stuff where it's like, well, it, it makes you feel good. It interacts with the reward system. So um if you if you are feeling down sometimes just feeling a little bit better can be enough uh to you know change your motivation and get everything moving um so the second part of this question asking about dependence and dose frequency and use you know we always we're, we're talking about tolerance and tolerance development in almost every journal club and almost every discussion about kratom because it's always usually framed in the context of the opiate use disorder um, we know that the recruitment of beta arrestin uh, at the opiate receptors reduces the receptor intake back into the cell. That's the cellular mechanism behind tolerance. Um, so without recruiting that beta arrestin, the kratom alkaloids um, do not seem to uh, cause the development of a tolerance as quickly or as um, uh, intense as the other you know, opiates like morphine or the, the codones. Um, but it does it does seem that the you know tolerance can develop i guess what i'm saying but there's not a clear thing that says like all right well if you use this dose over two grams every day for two weeks you're going to develop tolerance um it's not that clear cut it's not really that clear cut with any uh any of the opiates or any of any yeah. drugs really that is that clear cut um but you know tolerance breaks are a, a good thing um and you know just keep that in mind when you're moving forward I guess uh, the next one, it, it kind of goes along with it, is Kratom a better better alternative to long-term use of painkillers for pain management? And it kind of like the same answer to the last one. It kind of depends. Like, if you have serious pain mm -hmm. and you can you can use opiates in a, in a way that doesn't cause a distressing type of addiction, maybe the opioids are better for you and you can get them. You're, you have no trouble acquiring them and affording them. But... um yeah, I mean, I guess it depends on the person, but I I put a uh, I put an article up, a recent article that said kratom alkaloids 
uh, natural and semi-synthetic show less physical dependence and ameliorate opioid withdrawal. So there is some indication that there's less physical dependence than classical opioids. Um, demonstrated significantly fewer naloxone precipitated withdrawal signs than morphine-treated mice. So, in other words, um, they're they're having uh, less withdrawal symptoms if uh, mouse is uh, uh, right. treated with kratom than the, if they're treated with morphine. So it appears yeah. to be safer than classical opioids from a lot of studies, not the, just this one that I'm looking at right now. Yeah. So that yeah, they had an animal model of naloxone precipitated withdrawal. So they they treated the animals for an extended time and then uh, injected them with essentially Narcan. Um, so the withdrawal symptoms were less intense compared to those treated with morphine. Um, so withdrawal can be less intense. A better alternative to painkillers and pain management too. It does appear um, that kratom and its alkaloids have less potential risky side effects like an overdose, so less respiratory depression than the other classic opioids. Um, so from that perspective too, you know, I think most people, you know, most of the creative community knows about the eyeball wobbles. Like you feel nauseous and you, your, your eyes feel sort of like fuzzy around the edges when you've taken too much, but there is, you know, there's definitely no like nodding off or um, other potential. Like if you take too much, you won't be able to breathe. It scares there. So um, I would say it is a better alternative for painkillers for pain management. Um, in that, uh, in, in that, that there's less side effects and withdrawal and tolerance are less likely. Um, but depending on what type your, your pain is, like Brian was mentioning, like it, it's not a, it's not a silver bullet that's going to help everybody. Um, but I think it's, you know, much like cannabis is worth a shot and CBD is worth a shot before, um, prescription painkillers. I think Kratom is definitely worth the shot, um, before, before long-term pain prescription use. And I would say the only advantage to a prescription is you, you know exactly what you're getting. And with Kratom, you know, the alkaloids, depending on the strain or whatever, might be different. So it might have slightly uh-huh. different effects. And that's something that, you know, they're trying to do with the Consumer Protection Act is to make everything somewhat standardized. Or at least you'll know what what level of alkaloids are in there so you can make a... Right better informed choice so this guy was talking he had like uh, five questions about testing he goes what kind of testing do you do do you test the effects of kratom on brain cam strain humans how much testing is being done with kratom right now how much has been done in the past what are you trying to achieve by doing the testing where do you see testing leading in regards to regulation so they're trying to do clinical trials and you did stuff about you tested kratom on zebrafish right that's mostly uh-huh. what you did and probably mice uh-huh. and stuff um that's mostly what's been done and and when when i talked to uh dr sharma uh last week he said um you know they're trying to they're they can do human clinical trials but it's it's 
it's a lot there's a lot of obstacles in that they want the source of the kratom to be they want to control it from beginning to end that's why they're doing that greenhouse study and he did i i did ask him about it and he said they are gonna continue to grow those trees down there which will be cool yeah and so they want they basically want a chain of custody from growth to lab so they can do Uh human clinical trials like that so everything will be you know standard controlled so Uh so they can actually test the effects so it seems like we're a a ways away from doing that kind of thing if they actually want to grow it and only use that to test and whatever but um yeah Yeah. so mostly animal and so by testing here they're referring to like what sort of experimentation have you done um which is different than like testing would be laboratory testing or like analytical chemistry i think more specifically so yeah yeah the the uh what what type of experiments uh did you do so yeah it's it i did mostly behavioral pharmacology and animal models using zebrafish um most of the studies we read are in mice or rats and studying the effects of kratom on brain chemistry in humans poses a bit of an ethical dilemma uh and challenge in that you know, collecting or monitoring someone's actual brain chemistry or signaling pathways is uh, invasive and most likely deadly. Um, so there, you know, there are secondary measures that you can use that would be indicators of like serotonin levels uh, or stress levels. You can look at circulating cortisol in the blood, um, but it's real hard to look at brain chemistry as you know as defined as like at the molecular level uh in humans and i think you know i think brian and i having started this like um you know in in mid 2020 there are certainly papers coming out you know every week every two weeks that are are fresh um and most of them come from the similar groups in florida um but there are more groups popping up. So I would say that there is um, a growing amount of testing being done now, and it's more so than what it was in the past. Um, Most of the testing done now is trying to um, understand like uh, pharmacology. So pharmacokinetics, pharmacodynamics, um, receptor systems involved. um, And it's sort of like the most basic pharmacology that you can do. Um, is, is really what people are trying to establish with the testing. They're trying to establish safety, which I think is already um, already well uh, proven. It's not going to kill you. Um, so once they have that, they're moving on to then like, uh, how is this specifically working? Is there a pathway that we can exploit pharmacologically pharmacological with like prescription or a drug that can be patented? But basically they're laying the base foundation of knowledge here. Um, and I think that testing, in this last question he asked, where do you see the testing leading Kratom in regards to regulation? So I think that the regulation will be that Kratom has to be tested in that it has to have accurate labels like a nutrition facts of how much metragenine and how much uh, 7-hydroxy are in the product, like when, what batch of um, uh, plant or leaf material that uh, Kratom, if it was an extract or capsules made from, um and and any other sort of like quality control type things i i I am less fearful about the testing uh about experiments leading to kratom being banned than i was maybe a year ago um in that there are very 
you'd be hard pressed to find a paper that I, that essentially says kratom is the worst it's killing everybody and it needs to be banned right now scientists are generally more um they condition things a lot more than that and they would say like it may be worth more investigation to understand how 7-hydroxy is different than the regular metragenine. So I, I don't think that the research coming out, aside from just sort of like hedging our bets and being safe and saying, you know, we don't know what exactly this means, it's worth more investigation. It, it's getting more and more towards uh, supporting Kratom as a therapeutic compound, especially in opiate use disorder. But beyond that, alcoholism, you know, depression, anxiety, the research that's coming out now is supporting its use there and sort of um, laying the foundation for why those effects would be found. I don't think that the experiments that we see now are, are going to be leading towards prohibition. Um, we, yeah. think, we think that's a fair assessment. Yeah, definitely, definitely. I think uh, just just from all the stuff that's happened with uh, the uh, HHS letter to uh, the FDA that just came out but was written two years ago where he said, I don't recommend this be tested, and he s- said all the right things. This was the assistant secretary to HHS, and um, I don't know why. There was some political reason the letter didn't come out, but he rescinded his recommendation for a ban two years ago and well it was 2018 so it was like two and a half years ago so Uh yeah it doesn't look like anything's going to be it's not going to be banned anytime soon unless something weird happens which you never know (laughs) you never know with american politics these days something's going to take a turn yeah, I think this. I, I don't think the science can be used to justify a, a, a prohibition regulatory approach, but that does not say mean that social political factors could just lead to a prohibition because they want to. You know, certainly. Um, yeah, that's certainly a possibility. Uh, and this next guy had a lot of questions, but um, I think the one he's talking about a selective CYP three A four inducer like. Capsation is that how you pronounce that? I've only read that Capsation? word. Capsation, yeah, yeah. that's uh, the, the Saint John's word. He said, yeah. "Should that amplify the opioid-like effects?" Yeah. So this was a this was a a pretty detailed question where he's like giving us specific yeah. CYP family inhibitors, yeah, of of kratom, and so the notion is that. If you have the CYP enzymes inhibited, there would be less um, degradation of metragenine or 7-hydroxymetragenine in your system. Therefore, when it, when he says amplifying the opiate-like effects, it's really just um, extending them more or less. It's not necessarily making them stronger, um, but it's it, it's longer. Um, okay. So I don't know specifically about what a selective CYP3A4 uh, inhibitor inhibitors are. He yeah, I list capsaicin and the St. John Wort, um, but I don't I don't know if the, if that's the case. I have to look into it a lot more to answer specifically on this specific yeah. you know, specific question. I've I've seen people talk about um, grapefruit uh, as potentiators of opiates. It probably works by a similar way of of CYP inhibition. Yeah, I, I you know what I pro- he probably knows a lot more about this than we do. It sounds like his questions are all yeah, pretty detailed. I agree. It's yeah. yeah, it's stuff we could look up, but it would take a take a bit. But maybe I'll maybe I'll have him as a guest on the podcast. 
Yeah, uh, there you go. I mean, it does <laughs> seem like he's a scientist. He then goes on to say, explain why people using turmeric or black pepper are still claiming to feel stronger effects when that doesn't uh, inhibit the 3, 3 4 a it, it also does 2D6. Um, again, when it comes to people proclaiming that they have stronger effects, you know, um, set and setting, if they think that they're going to have stronger effects, they, they might. If they take action towards that, they, they have sort of like all the right sensory input to quote-unquote feel it. Um, how yeah. much of it is placebo or just willing yourself into feeling it more? I don't know. And is it, you know, it's not, it's just, it's not a good or bad thing. There's no judgment on that, but it's just something that you have to consider, especially when you're dealing with, with humans reporting, you know, more or less effects based on something that they're saying. If, if, if someone takes turmeric and it works for them and that's how they like to do it, I don't see any reason why not to do that. But if there's a pharmacological explanation for why that would happen, I'm not too sure. Yeah, if there's anything I learned with uh, all this stuff I've been doing on Kratom, it's like human beings aren't blank. Sl- they know we don't start off with the same blank slate uh, of um, uh, drug interactions. It, a lot of things has to do with your, your height and weight and your you know whatever what you ate that day uh, how much you exercise yeah. uh, what other stuff you, you put in your body and mm-hmm. it's there's mm-hmm. de- you definitely can't say this does it especially with kratom because the effects are pretty more subtle than some other things i think but um yeah yeah he, and he does have a, uh, at the end here, he's talking about how, you know, citizen scientists, most accurate papers require paid access. PubMed Central is a great place to find open access articles um, and, and publish, you know, peer-reviewed publications. Um, so PMC, if you go to PubMed Central. Yeah. Also Frontiers, um, the Frontiers Journal um, or Public Library of Science, PLLS, they have, uh, they have creative articles that are also open source. I wouldn't say that uh, the latest and most accurate papers require paid access. I don't think that's necessarily true. It seems like they're um, trying to do more that are that are uh, uh, open. Um, yeah, and, yeah, and you can always go on SciHub. <laughs> yeah, right, exactly. And and then yeah, if you find one that is behind a paywall, using SciHub to get access to that, that's the way to go. Um, and it, you know, and, and I just heard. I don't know if this is true or not, but it actually doesn't take money away from the authors. When you do that, it's like the publishers are just like way overcharging anyway. Oh, yeah, well, the <laughs> authors aren't getting any money. Yeah. You know, you know if you're writing a, a third party, a third, third, yeah, if you're a peer reviewed paper in a journal does not yield uh, residual revenue streams for the authors, uh, else I've been missing a lot of checks. Um, but like if you wrote a book, <laughs> Um, or something like that, you'll get residuals. But yeah, there's no money that's going back to the scientists on this. You know, it was funded by um, public research money. Um, and then the publishers lock it up behind lock and key. And they say they do that because of their overhead costs in properly formatting the document, um, which is pretty much automated at this point. That's a whole that's a whole other life uh, yeah. in itself. But yeah, it seems like there is more open access stuff coming out. And uh, if you, if you, Find a paper that you really want. Uh, check out SciHub. Yeah. C I H U B. Or contact me. I can get. I'm. I'm in 
I'm technically in school again. I'm going to uh, community college, so I can look up articles. <laughs> or we but, might already have them downloaded. I mean, I've got yeah, I've got uh, hundreds of creative articles already downloaded. So, yeah, yeah, yeah. There would be no harm in uh, hitting us up on Twitter. Yep, definitely. And I got to take a question from a guy named Bloody Condoms. <laughs> <laughs> But it's a good question. It's not uh, perverted at all. Uh, does Kratom cause any neurotoxic harm, and is it safe for long-term use? Now, so far, the only long-term users have been in Southeast Asia. And this is these are there was a couple from Malaysia, which is um, the link I put up there. But uh, doesn't look like there's any problem in long-term users. However, they're using Malaysian levels of the alkaloids. And like we were talking about uh-huh. before, some of our alkaloids, depending on the drying or whatever it is, are are heavier. So there's it, it doesn't appear to be, uh, you know, long term brain damage. I don't know. I don't know yeah. if that's that means neurotoxic is just brain damage or uh, cognitive functioning. Yeah. Neurotoxicity to me means like neuronal death. Um, you know, like. It doesn't necessarily have to be permanent, but it ha- it would have to be like pretty significant to start um, to start killing off neurons in your nervous system. So, an example of something that would be neurotoxic is called serotonin syndrome, where you have too much serotonin um, out in the synapses signaling with the neurons, and they basically get fried, like overused, like over over um, uh, and excited, like overactivity. And it can lead to neuronal death where like pathways start to lose some of their strength and connection. I don't think that there is anything to suggest that Kratom can cause serotonin syndrome or um, anything else that would increase transmission or signaling um, beyond, you know, the the therapeutic values. So I I think that it it does not cause neurotoxic harm. It's not safe for, it is safe for long-term use. Um, and until some compelling evidence comes out otherwise, you know, politics not being uh, compelling evidence, um, I think that that I think that we're pretty safe there. Okay, that was part one of Q and A from the remaining AMA questions. Stay tuned next time for part two. Please like, subscribe, rate, comment on whatever platform you're listening to us on. Uh, Dr. Cachet can be reached at jcachet on Twitter and pretty much any other platform. ccvresearch.com. The music is Captain Big Wheel. The song is called Moonrunner. Kratom Science Podcast is produced by me, Brian Gallagher, for kratomscience.com. Take care.